It shall be my study to recommend such constitutional measures to Congress as may be necessary and proper to secure encouragement and protection to the great interests of agriculture, commerce, and manufactures, to improve our rivers and harbors, to provide for the speedy extinguishment of the public debt, to enforce a strict accountability on the part of all officers of the government and the utmost economy in all public expenditures. But it is for the wisdom of Congress itself, in which all legislative powers are vested by the Constitution, to regulate these and other matters of domestic policy. I shall look with confidence to the enlightened patriotism of that body to adopt such measures of conciliation as may harmonize conflicting interests and tend to perpetuate that union, which should be the paramount object of our hopes and affections. In any action calculated to promote an object so near the heart of everyone who truly loves his country, I will zealously unite with the coordinate branches of the government. Zachary Taylor, March 5th, 1849. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. During the Mexican-American War, then-President James K. Polk had his envious eyes on a charismatic and well-respected general leading his men to a series of victories. Concerned about the military hero's ever-growing popularity, Polk decided to cut the general's forces in half, diverting a portion to assist in another battle. When the commander successfully defended against an attack by Mexican General Santa Ana, his popularity exploded, and I imagine Polk was quite irritated. Of course, the commander I am talking about is old rough-and-ready himself, Zachary Taylor. Elected as the 12th President of the United States in 1848, Taylor served only 16 months in office before dying on July 9, 1850. Known more for his military career than his presidency, Taylor came into office as tensions were coming to a fever pitch surrounding the institution of slavery. So this week, I am diving into the life and presidency of Zachary Taylor. What drew him into military service? How did he get to the White House? And why do historians blame him for escalating tensions and putting the country on a fast track to war? Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. If you've been a longtime listener of the podcast, then you have likely heard me mention Old Rough and Ready on prior episodes when I discussed various military campaigns. No overview of Taylor is complete without a review of his military record, but I may gloss over pieces already covered on prior episodes. Zachary Taylor was born on November 24, 1784, on a plantation in Virginia. One of nine children born to Sarah Dabney Strother and Lieutenant Colonel Richard Taylor. The family held massive real estate holdings, and Taylor spent his youth along the western frontier. He was not a great student and demonstrated an early interest in joining the military. This may have been due to his lack of interest in any formal education, 
or it could have been as a result of his father's prior service during the American Revolution. Either way, Taylor enlisted in the United States Army in 1808 at the age of 22 and would remain a man in uniform for the next four decades until his election to the presidency in 1848. Just two years into his military career, Taylor wed Margaret McCall Smith, a young woman from a prominent family in Maryland. Now, typically, I try to pay equal attention to the wives behind the great men in history, as I feel they are often brushed over in the larger historical narrative. However, I am going to have to break with tradition here, peeps. Unfortunately, despite my best sleuthing, I was unable to uncover many details about Mrs. Taylor, and definitely not enough to create an entire episode about her life and legacy. So I'm going to pause from President Taylor's overview for a moment and share what I was able to uncover about his wife of almost 40 years. Margaret Taylor was born Margaret McCall Smith on September 21st, 1788 in Calvert County, Maryland. Her parents, Anne McCall and Walter Smith, resided on a large tobacco plantation, and family lore is that Margaret's father also participated in the American Revolution. Peggy, as she was sometimes known, lost her mother at just 10 years old and had at least one sister who would prove to be the link to her future husband. In fact, it was while visiting her sister in Kentucky that Smith met the young lieutenant and the two married after a brief courtship. Zachary and Peggy wed on June 21, 1810, and initially lived together on a farm gifted to them by Taylor's father. But as Taylor's career progressed and he moved from post to post, his young family packed up and traveled with him. Reflecting on their time together and the heavy travel Mrs. Taylor took on to be next to her husband, Zachary Taylor once said, quote, My wife was as much of a soldier as I was, end quote. Together, the couple had six children, including two daughters who died of bilious fever in 1820, which led to health complications for Mrs. Taylor that plagued her for the rest of her life. Serving in the military, while noble, did not come with high pay. Watching his father's land expansion as a youth, Taylor sought to emulate him and purchased a small parcel of land. Over time, Taylor accumulated over 10,000 acres and enslaved over 100 men, women, and children. It is estimated that at the time of his death, Taylor's estate was worth roughly $6 million when you ingest it for inflation. Throughout his military career, Taylor commanded the respect of his charges, earning the nickname Old Rough and Ready for his willingness to share the hurdles and discomfort of his men. He successfully navigated victories against Native Americans in the Second Seminole War and against the British during the War of 1812. I previously covered the Second Seminole War in a prior episode, so take a listen if you want to learn more. But it was Taylor's overwhelming success during the Mexican-American War that propelled him into the presidency and endeared him to thousands of Americans. And as you know, if you've listened to the episode on the Mexican-American War, President Polk ordered U.S. troops into contested territory in the hopes of provoking hostilities. Taylor was front and center in the action, securing victories in the battles of Palo Alto and Monterey. I also covered in that episode that, increasingly irritated by Taylor's rising popularity and angered at some of the general's decisions, Polk ordered half of Taylor's men to reinforce General Scott, who was planning an attack on central Mexico. 
Seeing an opportunity, Mexican commander General Santa Anna decided to launch an attack against Taylor and his reduced fighting force. However, despite being outmatched, Taylor and his men still managed to secure a victory at what became known as the Battle of Buena Vista. Taylor's military success put him in the same echelon as previous military men turned commanders-in-chief. Much like Andrew Jackson and George Washington, Taylor enjoyed a widespread popularity and his likeness was printed everywhere. And I do mean everywhere. People could purchase everything from flasks to tapestry to mirrors with the general's face on it. This popularity drew the attention of political insiders, as both the Whigs and the Democrats hoped to turn Taylor into their presidential candidate. He had broad appeal for a number of reasons. As a Southerner and a slave owner, some hoped he would be a staunch protector of the institution. But as a military commander, others believed he may put the strength of the Union above regional identity. As a career military man, Taylor had never engaged in any public office or campaign and never outwardly disclosed his political leanings. In fact, Taylor had never even voted. This led both political parties to believe that Taylor was secretly in their camp. As the conventions grew closer and Taylor faced continued pressure to outline his beliefs, he came out on the side of the Whigs. However, despite formally acknowledging his Whig leanings, Taylor wanted to make it abundantly clear that should he be nominated, he would not be president of a party, but of the nation. In a letter written in January 1848, Taylor wrote, quote, If I were nominated for the presidency by any body of my fellow citizens, designated by any name they choose to adopt, I should esteem it an honor, and would accept such nomination, provided it had been made entirely independent of party considerations. End quote. Campaigners worked tirelessly to compare Taylor's military service and apathy about politics with the likes of the great generals before him, including the still popular Andrew Jackson. Despite being nominated for the office, Taylor never campaigned or outlined a platform of any sort. Critics tried to highlight that his lack of policy positions indicated he was unprepared for the office, and still others were concerned that without firm convictions, he may easily be persuaded. None of this seemed to matter to the voting public. And so, on November 7th, 1848, the first time a presidential election was held on the same day, nearly three million men cast their votes. Taylor won both the popular vote and the Electoral College, carrying 47% and 163 votes, respectively. Democratic challenger Lewis Cass fell short, securing just 42% of the popular vote and 127 electoral votes. Martin Van Buren, trying one final time to reclaim the White House, received just 10% of the popular vote and failed to pick up any electoral votes. Despite Taylor's electoral win, his popularity did not translate to down-ballot victories, certifying further that it was Taylor the man and not the Whig party who drew intense interest from voters. The failure to secure other electoral victories, however, meant that Taylor entered the White House without a majority behind him. Though, in looking at his administration, it is unclear how much it would have helped. Despite being elected to office as a member of the Whig Party, Taylor did not toe the party line and often frustrated party leaders. 
Not even the great compromiser himself, Henry Clay, was successful in convincing Taylor to proactively support party positions. However, he was also not an overly involved legislator, relying heavily on his cabinet. He never developed a working relationship with Congress and never issued an address on legislative or policy goals. Taylor seemed disinterested in foreign policy and domestic policy alike, only throwing his weight behind the admittance of California and New Mexico into the Union as free states. When Taylor announced his support, several southern states began calling for a secession convention. A man who had spent his career in service of maintaining the Union, Taylor became incensed and threatened to hang any individual who participated. His reaction, in part, prompted Whig leader Henry Clay to jump into negotiations in an effort to de-escalate tensions, leading to the Compromise of 1850, signed after Taylor's death. Given his sense of apathy and disinterest in the nature of politics and running a country, it is a wonder why Taylor agreed to be nominated as president in the first place. And Mrs. Taylor was not much better. Suffering from ill health, Margaret delegated the White House hosting duties to her 24-year-old newlywed daughter, Mary Elizabeth Taylor Bliss. According to family legend, Mrs. Taylor made a promise that should her husband come home safely from serving in the Mexican-American War, she would never again enter society. A promise she apparently kept. While she still entertained friends and family in her sitting room, Mrs. Taylor did not participate in any of the hustle and bustle of D.C. society prompting several rumors about the true motivations of her absence, including the very wild claim that she was secretly being held captive in the attic. The single most successful policy initiative of Taylor's administration was also his last official act in office. As the country continued its expansion into Western territories and furthered its international commercial opportunities, several businessmen became interested in building a canal in Central America. A canal would help merchants save thousands of miles, and therefore time and money, by avoiding the long and dangerous trip through the Strait of Magellan. Several American shipping companies began negotiating with officials in Nicaragua, hoping to secure an agreement in developing a canal. Of course, there was only one small problem. Great Britain already held interests in the region. As Taylor biographer John S.D. Eisenhower observed, quote, As the world's two leading nations in international commerce, they were both concerned with freedom of the seas and the promotion of trade. Their commonality of interest served as insurance against their ever going to war with each other. Given the history between the two nations, tensions were high, but both remained committed to trying to secure a mutually agreeable arrangement. That came through with the Clayton Bulwer Treaty. The treaty stated neither the United States nor Great Britain could build a canal without the other's consent, nor would they establish colonies in the area. The treaty also guaranteed that if and when a canal was built, both countries would allow it to be used for shipping purposes in a neutral fashion. This treaty helped the United States avoid yet another war with Great Britain, and indicated for the first time a reduction in the United States' commitment to the Monroe Doctrine. The treaty was signed by President Taylor on July 5, 1850. He would die just four days later. The 56-year-old commander-in-chief apparently experienced a severe bout of stomach pain after sipping water and ingesting cherries while enjoying Fourth of July festivities. Diagnosed with, quote, cholera morbus, the president's condition deteriorated quickly, and by the date of his death on July 9th, 
Congress, who had recent memories of dying presidents, began making preparations. As the president lay dying, he apparently told his wife, quote, I am about to die. I expect the summons very soon. I have tried to discharge my duties faithfully. I regret nothing, but I am sorry that I'm about to leave my friends. End quote. The president took his last breath between 10.30 and 11 p.m. His funeral was held at the executive mansion and presided over by Reverend Smith Pine. Mrs. Taylor, absolutely bereft at the loss of her spouse, remained upstairs while her husband's funeral occurred beneath her feet. She packed her things and left the White House that same night, never returning and never speaking of the place again. She would live just another two years, dying on August 14, 1852. As for the president, Congress arranged for Taylor to receive full military honors, and his casket was led by eight white horses and groomsmen dressed in turbans. The president's trusty steed, Old Whitey, also marched along the funeral route as thousands of citizens descended upon the Capitol to say goodbye to their commander-in-chief. Much like during his presidential bid, Taylor's likeness was affixed to various objects and became quite popular. While many in the press mourned the loss of the president, at least a few seemed to understand that given his truncated time in office, Taylor was more likely to be remembered for his military service than his time as president. And they were right. Whenever a president dies in office, there is always a question of what if. While Taylor seemed to demonstrate no overt interest in politics or policy, there was always a chance he might have grown into the job. Would the Compromise of 1850 been successful had he lived? Would the country have avoided the Civil War? It is impossible to know. Many historians point to Taylor's inaction about the peculiar institution as a significant factor in the country's march toward war. As Camille Davis asserts in her analysis of Taylor's legacy, he, quote, failed to provide leadership over what was then the largest political crisis in the country's history, end quote. A military general turned uninterested politician. Zachary Taylor ascended to the presidency as the country tried to navigate how to be a free nation while enslaving others. A man who had built a career on being a leader on the battlefield, Taylor seemed either unwilling or incapable of taking charge of the country and addressing the issue of slavery, and failed to chart a policy path. This failure, most historians agree, only further propelled the country towards war, just over a decade after his death. Thanks, peeps. I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.